If you've got your Bibles there, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We'll continue our journey through the book of Exodus today. We spent a bit of time on the Ten Commandments and, and went through them. Just a, a quick summary from last week is that the Ten Commandments for Christians are not the Ten Commandments, but rather the Ten Promises, because God promises to live in us. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and part of verse 4 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the righteous requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled, not just by Christ, but also in us. And that's how? Well, it's Christ living in us. The whole point of the Christian life is that only Christ can live it. We can't, and Christ wants to live his life through us. It's not a technique or a discipline, but a relationship where you allow Jesus Christ to make his home in your heart and allow him to live in you the life you could never live by yourself. If you think about that, if you could live it by yourself, why bother becoming a Christian? So this week we're going to keep going in Exodus. We're just going to go back to a verse-by-verse study. And we're going to get into the law. Now we've already talked about the law, how it's obsolete. It's the old covenant and it doesn't apply to us anymore. So why bother keeping on going through the book of Exodus? Well, there's some good reasons. We need to remember that Jesus said that everything in the volume of the book, meaning the law and the prophets and the, the whole Old Testament, referred to him. That's Hebrews 10 verse 7. So everything in the Old Testament refers to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And another verse, 1 Corinthians 10.11, and this is specifically talking about the stuff we're reading about in the Old Testament, especially the Exodus and things like that. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And the final reason, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we don't study the whole Bible, we're not going to be complete. So all scripture makes us complete. So in the law, we're going to see some really interesting illustrations and some applications like the Passover. And it tells us a lot about the cross. And when we read the festivals and study the sacrifices and the regulations and the ordinances, we gain a great deal of insight about Jesus. And we're going to find as we go through, I'm going to focus on how do these things point to Jesus. So, let's jump into chapter 20 and verse 18. And it's going to go through and stop along the way and talk about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us this great gift, full of your great and precious promises to us. And by them, we can be partakers of the divine nature. So I just pray you help us to walk with you and allow you to change us and mold us and change us from glory to glory as your Holy Spirit works in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 18 in chapter 20. 
Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. So the context is, they've just heard the Ten Commandments be blasted from Mount Sinai by God himself. And there's earthquakes, and the mountain is on fire. It's like a huge furnace. It's like a bomb's hit it. Very, very scary stuff. So they're saying, you know what, Moses, you just let God speak to you, and this is too scary for us. So the Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, divides, it kills our pride, our self-centeredness, and our flesh, Hebrews 4.12. And because it does, the person who wants to pamper their flesh the person caught up in their sins will often be the one who doesn't want to hear from God anymore. The person who chooses to indulge in their flesh today and the next day and week after week, they won't be at Bible study six months down the road because they have made a decision to turn away from God and the Bible gets very uncomfortable when we're turning away from God. So there's a saying that I've learnt I believe is true. The more we sin, the less we want to read the Bible. But the more we read the Bible, the less we'll sin. So the Bible is what keeps us strong when we read it and ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. So Satan wants to keep us from blessing. He wants to keep us from what God wants to do in us and through us and for us. So don't stop reading the Word. Let God speak and God will strengthen you. Verse 20. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So God is is testing us, and he's putting his fear into us. And we spoke before about this. The fear of God is not enough to stop us from sinning. We need a relationship with God. Because we're going to see, not today, but a few weeks' time, when Moses goes up to the mountain, the people have this big orgy and make an idol. The fear of God is not enough to stop us from sinning, but it helps. That respect and that reverence we have. Verse 21, So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Now it's interesting, you know, these guys, there's references, I won't read them all now, but it says they saw God. They went up and they saw this pavilion, like crystal and stuff like that. It was almost like revelation. But 40 years later, Moses says, he's reminding them, the new generation, about the law. And he says, but they saw no form of any kind. So God didn't reveal himself in any kind of form. So the Jews wouldn't turn the living God into a dead idol. Because <laughs> if God revealed himself in whatever form, they would have made an idol of that. Isaiah 40 verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? Well, we don't have any likeness of God, his spirit. Verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So, we've just received the law. So what do we need now? We need an altar. Because the law reminds us that we're sinners 
and now we need a sacrifice to take away our sin. Verse 25, and if you make and if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Now why? Well, the altar was not to be ornate or artistic, but rather very simple, made of dirt or uncarved stone. So again, why? Well, I believe so that the focus would not be on the altar, but on the sacrifice. So the sacrifice speaks of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So generally speaking, the further a people stray away from a real relationship with God, the greater the tendency will be toward grandeur and glory in altar building. When the Spirit of God is not moving, the Artesians and architects try to figure out how to create a feeling or atmosphere to mask the lack of a genuine move of the Holy Spirit, a work of God. But the heart of the Father is that the focus is always going to be on the Son. So if if the stones were chiseled, they would become like idols, and the work of man would become more important than the worship of God. And this can happen in any church. It can happen in our families. Alright, verse 26. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So God wants our worship to be simple. Don't carve really ornate altars and stuff. But there needs to be humility as well. So they're clothed in these robes. And the higher they climbed, the more exposed they would be. So God says, don't go up. We just stay on level ground. Remember what the publican said? God be merciful to me, a sinner. Eyes downcast, Luke 18.13. So the worship God honors is not a set of 12 steps where one climbs higher and higher. It's a one-step worship. It's a simple step to the Savior. God wants our worship to be kept simple to focus on their sacrifice and not on the structure and to stay humble. Now, from a historical point of view, there's another reason for this, apart from the application to us, and that is both nudity and intercourse with temple prostitutes were a part of many pagan religious ceremonies. So where they were going into, into the promised land, that's what they did. And so God is saying, no, you're different. You're not going to do those dirty things. All right, chapter 21. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. So, this is talking about slavery, and the next few verses talk about slavery as well. Is slavery okay? Well, with divorce, is divorce okay? But God gave laws concerning divorce. Why would God give laws concerning divorce to Moses if divorce is not okay? The hardness of their hearts. Okay, so 
God wasn't saying, I like divorce, when he gave laws for how people could be divorced. He was regulating divorce. So slavery was a part of the time. And so God was regulating the slavery in the same way he was regulating divorce later on. So it's not God's intent that people be slaves, neither is it God's intent that people get divorced. But because of the hardness of our hearts, God regulated it. So these regulations are protecting the slaves. Now, this is really interesting, this slave being taken to the judges, having his ear put next to the doorpost and having a big nail put through it, or whatever an awl is, I'm not sure what it looks like. So this signified that he was a slave by choice. Now, if anything out of this chapter speaks about Jesus, it's this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7. to Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So Jesus is the ultimate servant, the perfect servant. And there's a type. So there's six years the Old Testament slave was to serve, speaks to the number of men. So Jesus left his throne in heaven to become a man. And just as the seventh year speaks of the number of completion, so Jesus completed the work he came to do to reconcile us to the Father. And it's John seventeen twenty one. And just as the Old Testament slave could choose to remain a slave for love of family and master, so Jesus chose to become a slave for the love of, there's three things here, his bride, which is us, Ephesians five twenty five to 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Christ gave himself for us, his bride. And then his children and also the Father, he submitted to the Father. John eight twenty nine. And he who sent me is with me, the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. That's what a servant does. That's a servant's heart. Now, Jesus was also pierced, not through his ear, but through his hands and his feet, his brow and his side. Why would you go to the doorpost? Remember when they did Passover, they put the blood on the doorposts, so piercing onto the door, so slave, it could be that too. And verse 6, and he shall serve him forever. So although Jesus finished the work, Jesus chose to be a servant forever. And that's why he girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet, John 13. And that's why he will gird himself again, like put a towel around himself again, and serve all those who are watching for his coming. Do you realize that? It's Luke 12:37. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. So, Jesus is still a servant. So, if Jesus is a servant, what should I be? A servant, right? Jesus sets the pace. Jesus shows the way. And sometimes 
when we're not thanked, we do something we're not thanked, we're not appreciated, it's a good opportunity to see if you're really a servant or not. How do you react when you do something and no one thanks you? Are you doing it for the recognition? Are you for the reward? Or are you doing it just because you love them and doing it for God first and foremost? Now, in the New Testament, there's a lot of examples of this where people call themselves bond servants of Jesus Christ. And my phrase for this is servants for love for life. Servants for love for life. So bond servants. In Philippians 2.7, depending on the translation, it says Jesus came making himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. Paul and Timothy, Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Epaphras, in Colossians 4 verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you. And he goes on, and then James and Peter and Jude, they all introduce themselves as bond servants of Jesus Christ. There's other verses that tell us about being a bond servant. Galatians 1.10 Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. So the single most important characteristic of us as bond servants, if we have submitted in that way, is that we seek to please God and not man. We're looking for the praise of God more than we are the praise of man. Ephesians 6, 5 and 7, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as man pleases, or men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So a bond servant, a Christian who loves the Lord and is putting God first, we don't serve other people, we're serving the Lord, and in that we're serving other people. The Lord comes first. That way we're not a man pleaser, but a God pleaser. And one more verse on this, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. So that's speaking about serving each other. It's what it means to submit to one another, to be a servant to each other. I'm a bondservant to you, for Jesus' sake, and you're a bondservant to me, for Jesus' sake. You're all serving each other. So the application, we can ask ourselves, am I a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a servant for love, for life? Does the love of Christ compel me? Verse 7, now we get on to the daughters. That was the sons before. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as a male slaves do. So she's not set free after six years. So it's actually a blessing for the women because they would become part of that family. Usually the girl would be bought, but she would be married into that family often. And it was God's way of looking after the poor. If a man couldn't afford to look after his son or daughter, they would be sold to another household where they would be fed and clothed and given shelter in exchange for work. So basically it's their social security system. Verse 8. If she does not please her master who had betrothed her to himself, that's engaged, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he hath betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. 
he should treat her as his daughter. So, basically, if the man buys this girl and wants to marry her but then changes his mind, well, he can't unsell her. He has to give her back to her family. Again, it's a protection for the women. Now, this next verse is polygamy. Gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? All right. Polygamy. Is God saying polygamy is okay? No. Same way. One man, one woman for life. That's what God said in Genesis. But he's regulating it. Okay. He's saying if you do happen to be in a household where there's two wives, you've got to look after them. These women have rights. This is counterculture for the time. So he's telling the people that you need to treat your wives fairly. Each wife should be treated fairly. And that's pretty important. Now, the next verses talk about capital crimes, like where you get the death penalty. And they come from chapter 20, verse 13, which is you shall not kill. And Leviticus 24, 17, it says the same thing. So why is murder such a serious crime? Why does it get a death penalty? Well, in Genesis 9, 6, it tells us why. We're made in God's image, so to murder a fellow human being is to attack the image of God. That's the reasoning in Genesis 9.6. Now, if a person was found guilty of murder on the testimony of two or more witnesses, then the murderer was killed. So you needed to have two or more witnesses. And that's in Numbers chapter 35. Verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies will surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. So, even today we have second-degree murder and first-degree murder. Second-degree murder is not premeditated, it's not pre-planned, it's not purposeful. It's an accident. It's like chopping together and your axe head falls off and lodges in someone's head. Well, you didn't mean to do that. So, you don't deserve to die for that. Verse 14, But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, then you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So, if a man intentionally kills someone, there's no forgiveness. They must be put to death. There's an application here. Peter warned us that we are not to use our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. 1 Peter 2.16 Some people say, I've come to the altar or to the table of communion, so now I can do whatever I want. God will forgive me. But Peter says that that person doesn't understand that liberty and grace are not to be a cloak, a cover-up for sin. It's meant to be a freedom to do what God wants us to do. Verse 15, here's another law that deserves the death penalty. And he who strikes his father or his mother will surely be put to death. Imagine that happened today. 21.16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, surely shall be put to death. So kidnapping. Remember, it's a death penalty as well. And he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. So, this thing about parents and respecting your parents, God takes it very, very seriously. And so, as parents, we need to be very careful in how we bring up our kids, that we help them to understand that we're a picture of their Heavenly Father and they have to treat us with respect so they can learn to treat others and also God with respect too. That's why I see it. Verse 18, 
If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted or set free. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So if two guys fight and one guy gets injured but he gets better, then all the other guy has to do is to pay for the lost time and for any medical expenses. So pretty self-explanatory laws, fair laws. So you, you, there's consequences, but they're not over the top. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property, or money, literally. So, if a servant is hurt permanently, there's a price to pay, but if the servant is only bruised, there's no price to pay. So, I think it's just basically giving the master the benefit of the doubt that he didn't actually mean to hurt the slave when he was disciplining them. And being servants, well, what does the Bible say about us as servants? Not as far as bond servants, but in Romans. It says, we are the slaves of the one we obey. Just thought I'd throw that in there. We are the slaves to Satan or slaves to Jesus Christ. We can present our members as instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness, and that's even as Christians. So, verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. So, imagine a pub situation. Someone throws a chair, the other guy ducks, and it hits a lady in the stomach, and she gives birth prematurely and the baby dies, then the way I understand that, that's life for life. The baby is a life. Or the woman, if she dies too. So, the death of the baby, even though it was an accident, was treated as first-degree murder. Verse 24. Now, there's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So it seems pretty harsh, but it's actually, in reality, an expression of God's mercy. Now, here's a story about a primary school kid, all right? When Peter John was in first grade, he came home from school one day with his shirt rumpled and tear stains on his cheek. What happened, I asked. The biggest guy in my class beat me up, he answered. The next morning, he came out of his room carrying his baseball bat. (laughs) When I asked him why, he answered, Today is show and tell. But I, having a pretty good idea to whom he was going to show his bat, I made him take a baseball card instead. So, our tendency is someone hurts our eye, we want to hurt both of theirs. If someone gives us one bruise, we're going to give them two. If someone knocks out one of our teeth, we're going to knock out all of their teeth. So this law is saying that your retribution, that the consequence cannot be more than the offence. It's limiting vengeance. It's taking away our human nature tendency to go further. Now, later on in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to say, if someone hits you on your right cheek, offer him your left cheek as well. It doesn't have to be, you know, he hit me, so I must hit him. So there is grace. And that's what Jesus expects of us as Christians too.
when we're offended, Jesus didn't fight back. But in a law situation, this is a law. In a law situation, if you go into the courts, then this is how the judges should judge. If you've cost someone $20,000 in damage, then you pay $20,000 in damage. Not more, not less. Verse 26, If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of the tooth. So if a servant loses an eye or a tooth because of the master's um, discipline, then he gets to go free. So again, looking after the servant. Now we get into animals. 28 to 30, If an ox gores a man or woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted, or he's not responsible. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to its owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. So, if an ox scores someone the first time, it's like a horse kicking people, oh, it's an accident. You know, it's never happened before. But if it happens again, it's already happened once before, then you know the ox was you know, prone to kick people or to gore people. You need to take care that you don't let the ox out around people. You need to protect people from your ox, which is known to gore people. So if you don't do that, then you're responsible, which is fair. Verse 31, Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment it shall be done to him. If the ox scores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So here's the price of a servant, 30 shekels of silver. Does that ring a bell? So Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was a servant sold as a slave. Verse 33, And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. Fair enough. If you dig a hole and someone falls into it, then you're responsible for their injury or for the animal's injury. Verse 35, If one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and its owner has not kept it confined, then he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So, again, it's really common sense stuff. If an ox killed another ox, two oxes meet and they don't like each other and they fight, and one gets killed, well, it's not really anyone's fault. So you split the money from the live ox and have half the dead ox for dinner, and it's all good. And so with half that money, they can go and buy another ox. I'm sure they could work it out, so one bought another one and the other one just gave them some extra money. But if it's happened before, again, the owner of the ox who gored the other one, or killed the other one, has to pay for the new animal completely. So I just want to remind you that these laws, they seem quite common sense. You know, they're fair. Well, back in the day, these were revolutionary laws. And 
it's just completely different from the way slaves were treated, for example, in other cultures. Those slaves in other cultures had no rights. The women had no rights. So this is revolutionary. God is raising the standard really high. He's showing that he cares about people and that he's fair. So that's all I want to do today. As we think about what we've done so far, the slave, Jesus came as a slave. Most of the New Testament people identify themselves as bond slaves. A bond slave is a person who has had their ear pierced with the awl on the doorpost where the blood was put. And it's reminding us that we're to be slaves first and foremost to Jesus. And that's our motive for serving people. Father, I pray that you'll help us to consider about being a servant. Lord, where is our heart? Are we looking for recognition for ourselves? Are we seeking to do things for some kind of reward? Or are we doing it for love? And I pray that we can ask ourselves that question in a real way and that we can meditate on that and that you would just show us what's in our heart, Father, so we can be truly bond servants of Jesus Christ, serving each other for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.